Hello and welcome to a special episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Welcome to Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard, and I recently had the distinct pleasure of talking with Thomas More. By way of a proper introduction, Thomas More is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul, first published in 1992. The book stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for almost a year. Since then, he has written 30 other books about bringing soul to personal life and culture. He has a PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University and an MA in music composition from the University of Michigan. And Thomas has traveled the world teaching and speaking. He is also a psychotherapist, influenced mainly by C.G. Jung and James Hillman, his close friend for four decades. Thomas's most recent book is The Eloquence of Silence. Now, as you will know if you've listened to recent episodes of the podcast, I frequently mention James Hillman and use his essays and books to bring the astrological planets and signs to life. And I thought to reach out to Thomas More because of his close friendship with Hillman and his deep familiarity with the work. And Thomas and I had plenty to talk about in a very wide-ranging conversation. We touch on many subjects, pulling from four primary books. We start with his newest book, The Eloquence of Silence, Surprising Wisdom in Tales of Emptiness. We also touch on his book, The Planets Within, The Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino. He talks about his relationship with Hillman, Hillman's work, and the book, The Essential James Hillman, A Blue Fire, which Thomas edited and wrote commentary throughout. And of course, we talk about Care of the Soul a guide for cultivating depth and sacredness in everyday life. The audio quality of this episode varies from previous episodes, as my quest for audio purity hit a stumbling block in learning how to record an interview. It all works, it's just a little different. And with that, I bring you my conversation with Thomas More. Hello, Thomas. It's so great to talk with you. Hi, Sean. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. It seems like we have a lot in common. Yeah, I, I've been aware of you for quite a while via um, my studies of James Hillman's work. And I finally decided to reach out to you to see if you wanted to come on to talk about James Hillman's work, to talk about your relationship with him, and also to talk about your work. Obviously, you are the author of Care of the Soul, that beautiful book that's, um, I think, more relevant today than ever, perhaps. And you have a new book called The Eloquence of Silence. Should we jump in and talk about that first? Sure, that'd be fine. So what inspired you to write The Eloquence of Silence? The subtitle is Surprising Wisdom and Tales of Emptiness. Mm -hmm. I happen to have this book with me today. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and uh, it's uh, the most recent one I've done. And it's a short book uh, with uh, my commentary, really my commentary or my riff on uh, on 30 different stories and passages from people about 
about emptiness. The, the main type, uh, subject is emptiness. Silence is one of those, you know, contained within emptiness. And uh, I first discovered emptiness when I began studying uh, Zen Buddhism mm. and uh, Taoism and also uh, Indian, various Indian, uh, uh, you know, spiritual writings. Emptiness is very strong in these writings and it's, it's usually presented in very ethereal, uh, very remote ways. And this book is trying to bring emptiness down to everyday experience. Not, not only practical, but a, a way of being. Like, for example, um, uh, part of it might be clearing out your life, clearing out your schedule and your, uh, you know, your space. But another way of being empty in a positive way is not to be too uh, full of agendas uh, in what you do. Like for me to talk to you today, I really don't have any agenda. I'm not yeah. selling a book. I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to peddle any ideas. I really have no agenda. Normally, in my writing and in my speaking, I don't. In teaching, I don't have much of an agenda. I try to clear as much as I can. Even when I give a public lecture, I usually spend the time ahead of it just trying to make my mind empty so that when I go out to speak to people, I have absolutely nothing in mind. It just comes out of me for that moment. That's a kind of emptying. Yeah, and I definitely feel that um, about a half hour before I do a webinar or before I talk to someone like you where my mind starts to get fuller and fuller of ideas and agendas and things. And then I just go, let's get that out of the way so that I can be here to talk with you. That's right. Exactly. And I love the layout of the book where you have a little story or a yeah. poem or an anecdote, and then you riff on it. That's and right. I've really been enjoying reading it because first of all, I notice I have the Kindle version and the way that it shows up on my iPad there's a lot of emptiness in the spaces after the tales. There's a lot of white space, which is usually eradicated in a lot of publishing and talking on a podcast about the eloquence of silence. You know, it makes me think of how the most revered thing in our culture in a way is that moment of silence. You know, when it's in, I love how your book is moments and moments and moments of silence. Yes, there's a lot of silence built into it. And of course, that's that's my hope, you know, to to do it in a style that would be consistent with the theme. Yeah. And it reminds me of actually, I was thinking last night when I was reading more, uh, I read very slowly. So I just make my way through a story and then I read what you've said about it. And then I can sit with it for a week and let it sink in. Yes. <laughs> but it made me think of the moon. And the waxing and waning of the moon, yeah. the way you talk about emptying out. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, that's very traditional, as you know. Uh, very traditional to, to talk about the emptying of the moon. And to uh, adjust your life to the moon that way, too. To learn, not only learn from nature how to be, but to be, uh, attune your life to what's happening in the world outside of you. Yeah. Um, I know you have a background in astrology. Can we talk about that for just a moment and come back oh, to yeah. silence? Because oh. you have this brilliant book called uh, The Planets Within. And I was just wondering what got you interested in astrology? You know, you have such a fascinating background. So I'd love to hear what got you interested in astrology. Do you follow it today? Well, my my P, I have a PhD in religious studies, and mm -hmm. that's a very broad that represents a very broad study. I was not I was not studying with any religious tradition at all, but in every religious tradition, all mythologies I could get a hold of, alchemy and other mm -hmm. any other imagistic system for uh, exploring in, many, in a meaningful way what we're doing on this planet. So astrology is one of the most ancient and the most, probably the most uh, complete ways of doing that. Right. Um, I think my own sense, I'm probably just speaking for myself, but I've heard other people say it, that you have to have, a, have an inborn knack for astrology to really be an astrologer. Mm -hmm. And I don't have it. So I'm not mm -hmm. an astrologer in the practicing sense of the word. I'm not. But I have been 
exploring astrology and being I'm very appreciative of it and having my own idea about it. For example, I I read the clouds a lot, and I think that's a form of astrology as well. And oh, I love uh, that. so, or anything that happens in the sky at all. And so uh, that's what I do. I look for a meaningful way of of of, of looking at the sky, but also um, any other thing, like the alchemists would look at materials from the earth, and they yeah. find a whole world there. So uh, I, I'm very interested in it. I can't say I, I know as a practicing astrologer, I'm practicing one. I'm not, I'm not that, you know, versed to be able to do that well. I do it, I, I look at birth charts with my clients in therapy, um, and I get a lot out of that, but I do it probably more in the Renaissance European way, because that's where I found astrology in uh, my studies of natural magic in the Renaissance period. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Because you do such a beautiful job in the book about going through each of the, you know, traditional planets very thoroughly and very beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I wrote that book when I was 30 years old. <laughs> and uh, feels like another lifetime ago. And I I have my doubts about what I could do then, but I haven't looked at it in many, many years. But I'm glad to hear that it has some meaning for you. Yeah, it's one of the books I go back to and go back to. Mm. Yeah. And just to go back to the eloquence of silence and emptying out, you know, it's like it makes me think of the moon, but it also makes me think of Saturn because one of the ways that I talk about Saturn is I kind of relate it to when you eat you know, and you eat a meal and you reach that point of fullness, you reach a limit, you know, that where you're sated. And then you have to wait for an emptying out before you resume eating. And it's that Saturn limit, you know, that in our culture, it seems we're, we're at where things are very full. So it seems like your book is very timely, you know, as a reminder for that emptying out. Yeah, I hope so. I think it is. Many people are telling me that. I didn't have any expectations for this book. I did have for the previous two books I worked so hard at and was really disappointed that people didn't pick them up. Mm. And this one, I thought, well, I've been I've been collecting these stories. I know them very well. I didn't go looking for them. I, I knew these stories and these passages very well. I put them together. And I thought, well, maybe I should make a book out of it. I, and I thought, well, I'll just find someone, a publisher that might be interested in doing this, but I had no expectations. And now mm -hmm. I'm finding that many, many people are telling me that this is timely because uh, we are, we, as you say, sated. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that word has is related to Saturn. And might be. I think uh, it is whether the etymology tells us it is or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And our own etymology for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's uh, I, that's the my, my feeling about this book. I'm very happy that people are interested and uh, that that it does speak to to something going on. And I knew that, but I wasn't I wasn't aware that people would really feel that mm -hmm. feel that so much. So I'm, I'm very happy to see that. Well, as the author of Care of the Soul, you know, and which makes me think of Hillman's The Soul's Code. You know, I think being in touch with the soul, you don't necessarily need to follow every astrological movement day by day, anything like that, it just gets you in touch with the soul of the world, you know, and you, and you just, you're aware of things, which reminds me, you know, as a segue, you have a book also called A Blue Fire. Yes. Which will lead us into talking about James Hillman, because yeah. it's a, it's a compilation of pieces. It's not full essays as much as it is pieces with your commentary on James Hillman. And I attended last year, I believe, a three-part webinar series you did through Pacifica, yes. um, talking about James Hillman's work, which was wonderful, just wonderful to hear James Hillman's work being talked about. So I want to just talk, like, how did you meet him? How did you two come to know each other? It was, uh, I went to the, uh, I went to Syracuse University to study, uh, to do religious studies, a doctorate in religious studies. And it was a wonderful program. I'm so happy I found my way there. Mm -hmm. And um, my first seminar was in Jung, 
And uh, I, my first assignment was to read the collected works of Jung, which really got hmm. me into it. And, the whole collected uh, works? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> that's 20 volumes. Really yeah. Volumes of writing. And uh, so my my professor, David Miller, at uh, for the... Mm -hmm. At uh, play, at that time and place was my he was also my dissertation advisor on the planets within. Um, he uh, he knew Hillman. He had been over met Hillman over at the Aronos uh, lectures in Switzerland, and um, he saw my interest in Jung and what I was doing in my work and who I was, and he thought that I would I would appreciate connecting up with Hillman. So I wrote to, to uh, I call him Jim. That's who I, for 40 years I talked to him. <laughs> uh, so I, I wrote to Jim over in, uh, in Zurich and told him my interests. And he began sending me uh, articles he was writing and publishing in journals at the time. He, didn't, he really hadn't written his books yet. And this was in about 1973, hmm. two or three, something around there. And um, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I'm, I'm 82 right now. Mm -hmm. and so uh, we had a really good correspondence. And I love the work he was sending me. Like one of the first things he sent me was his essay on psychological polytheism, mm -hmm. which made so much sense to me that I uh, immediately wanted to have everything that he wrote. I wanted to know because I, that, made, that made a lot of sense to me. And so I, uh, uh, we got, to, we were communicating that way in writing. And then when I got my, my degree, I taught for a year uh, in a psychology department and then got, was offered a job in Dallas, Texas at Southern Methodist University to teach religious studies there. And uh, at the very same time, a year later, uh, Jim Hillman got a, uh, decided to leave Europe and come to back to the United States after 30 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got an invitation uh, at, a, at a faculty in Dallas, University of Dallas. It was across town from where I was. And um, so immediately, you know, we met there. We met at the University of Dallas. And he was getting a lot of attention and support there. And... Uh, so uh, he didn't drive a car, so I offered to drive him wherever he needed to go. I was living as a single man at the time. I had plenty of time. And uh, so I drove him around and we had many conversations and then we just became close friends. And we went out to dinner, I'd say, you know, a couple of times a week. And uh, we, we, we gave talks together at this institute and... Uh, we traveled sometimes to give uh, to give lectures, and uh, we got to know each other very well, and we got along very well. A lot of people didn't get along with him. He's a very feisty, strong person, uh, uh, birth uh, son and Aries, you know, really very much so. And uh, at the, but for some reason, he and I just we had a background. I think that was similar. We had tastes that were similar. We had a similar sense of humor, which helped us a lot. <laughs> and uh, so we laughed about everything. We just had a good time observing. He was always on. He was always looking at the psyche, he would say, or the soul. Yeah. No matter where we were, what time of day it was, he was interested. I remember, for example, one day uh, we went to a softball game in a neighborhood and and we sat to watch this game, and all he could do was talk about the psyche of the bay of the ball game. And oh, I love that! How important he loved the fact that the, the managers or the, the people running the teams were thinking so much, so far ahead, and trying to get strategies for the game. And he thought this made it such a a game of the psyche rather than a just a plain physical game. And so it was very interesting, and we talked about all kinds of things as we sat there. Did that sort of thing many times. Yeah. I love that, you know, when I discovered that he was a sun in Aries and a moon in Aries, as a sun in Aries myself, I liked learning that. Okay. But I had heard of Hillman's reputation before I ever, you know, read anything by him or listened to anything by him. Yeah. And nothing appealed to me because I had heard he was, you know, an angry tap dancing trickster. 
And I finally picked up the soul's code. And when I started reading it, I said, nobody told me it was like this because it's so beautiful. And you have that in common with him with care of the soul. And there's a way that when you're working with the soul and writing about the soul, both of you, like the way you simply, you simply say, it's care of the soul, not cure of the soul. Yes. And that leads me into thinking about um, Hillman and pathologizing. And I just wonder if you could share your understanding of pathologizing, because that's such an important part of his work. Sure. Um, that's a section of his book, Revisioning Psychology, yeah. which is kind of the basic text for Hillman's thought. I mean, it's it doesn't have everything in it at all, especially it doesn't have his later work where he worked on the soul of the world and culture. Mm-hmm. But and, and uh, but he had some of his basic ideas are there, and uh, I think he had an editor to try to help him really be more com- communicate it better. Uh, because it doesn't read like the writing that I was used to, all those fresh things coming off the presses. Ah, from the letters. Uh, they were very dense. And, yeah. uh, it's not. It's dense, but it's not quite that dense. Um, Soul's Code is not that. He really wrote that for the public. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and for me, that was a little disappointing because I, I was used to something a little more dense. And I liked the density of it. But anyway... Uh, Pathologizing is a section in, in, in revisioning psychology where uh, uh, Hillman discusses the fact that we that we have problems that we we get jealous we get angry we get depressed we have trouble in our relationships we feel uh, frustrated not being able to get our lives going or our careers going things like that. These he would call pathologies, pathologies of the soul. Uh, let me just mention, he doesn't do this as far as I know. Uh, pathos in Greek means to be affected by something, to be mm. affected. It doesn't mean you're sick. So pathology from the, from the language point of view would mean that you are really affected. Now, normally that would be something that feels negative. Right. And uh, so Hillman is saying that this is the way the soul exists. This is These are important moments for the soul, for the life of the soul. It's not unnatural. It's not something coming from outside that is interfering. It's a natural experience of the soul to pathologize, mm-hmm. to feel that something is wrong, and to want to do something about it. That's why the therapy of, this, of the soul is so important that you're not there to get rid of these pathologies. You're there to deepen them and and look at them closely to find out what they are trying to tell you and show you Mm -hmm. about progress in life. So it really makes quite a big difference to think of it that way. And uh, and then uh, another way he depicts it, he uses mythology a great deal Mm -hmm. uh, as a... what would you say, as a resource for understanding these pathologies. And so he would say there may be certain pathologies of Venus, let's say, or Aphrodite and the Greeks. So that would be sexuality and relationship and love, certain kinds of love related to erotic life and so on. Um, And uh, so he would say then that... uh, People sometimes do get jealous, or they get uh, they get just really so torn apart because of the loss of a relationship or the difficulty of a relationship, or they can't get their sexual lives together where they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I see that all the time as a therapist. So you might call that the pathology of Venus. It's and he would say. Well, if you are suffering a lot in this in your, your sexuality, what you need to do is bring that suffering to Venus, to the altar of Venus. Put it there at the altar of Venus, because what you need to do is get a deeper initiation into her. So the pathology shows you what you need. Uh, it's not something to get rid of. You need to follow through on it and deepen it and take it to its core. I think that's what he would term the word core, though. Sorry. Yeah, understood. And I think it would, you know, would would be what he calls soul making. Yeah, soul making would be 
would be uh, to deepening yourself into uh, a person with a soul. That means with the depth and with uh, a breath too. You can hold mm -hmm. a great deal in yourself and in your life. You can you can uh, be jealous, but at the same time do your creative work, yeah. and at the same time do other things. So it takes a, a broad self, you might say, sense of self, a polytheistic self. That means all these things can coexist, and you don't have to be, you have to, have to say one thing is the right way, but there are many ways that are the right way, and you have to be big enough to contain all of that. Yeah, well said. It's it's one of the things that I think with astrology, you know, when I look at a chart, is it has all of these different planets, figures, mythic figures alive in it. And oftentimes they contradict each other in their yeah. nature, but also in the chart, especially they can be in conflict with each other. And it's not something like you say to cure, but how do I live my life with this and care for it and tend to it? And it brings me to, you know, that term soul making comes from John Keats in the Romantic yes. Era. And there's a line that I've come across in my studies from John Ruskin from the mm -hmm. Romantic Era that makes me, I never heard Hillman reference this, but I thought he would light up with this line, is that Ruskin says, the imagination is never governed. It is always the ruling and divine power. Yes, and they're very happy with that. So I would love to, you know, just dive into imagination a little bit from your perspective and or Hillman's perspective, because I find so often it's misunderstood as, you know, entertainment or childish or um, nothing profound to take seriously. And like he says in The Thought of the Heart, we're taught that it actually leads us astray. And, and I find the opposite to be true. Totally. Uh, I once created an institute of my own that I was in existence for four or five years called the Institute for the Study of Imagination. Oh, I, I had a little it. sign that I made and put outside my office door and, and people would laugh when they saw it. You know, there's something about imagination that makes people take it lightly. And maybe that's not such a bad thing, but it is also a deep thing. Yeah. So the thing is, Jung says that... Um, the psyche is known through images. He goes further. He says the psyche is image. And, you know, we have this, well, I don't, I won't. There's another interesting quote from William Blake that Jesus is the imagination. Yeah. So um, it's a, taken very seriously. And what that means is that, uh, that everything we do, whenever we encounter anything or anybody, we are really imagining as we are doing this. We are being influenced by uh, our, our past, for example, only one thing, we're interested by our past, we're influenced by our past, so that we may, it's very possible, it sounds very Freudian, but when you walk into a room, you may meet somebody who reminds you so much of your father that you begin relating to them as your father. Mm -hmm. And you see this father archetype, it appears everywhere. So it's not that you're projecting your father onto that person, but you discover and you see you are encountering once again, as you did with your own father, the great father, the father image, father archetype. That is all imagination at work. And it's not just your past and your childhood that would come up then, but maybe things you have studied and learned. Anything that has come to you remains as an image. And... Uh, so we are constantly seeing the world imaginally through mm -hmm. our imagination. It is central. It's the central thing. And if you don't get that, then you are literalizing things and responding to things only at the literal level. And that's not where your emotions are. And that's not the source of meaning for you. The source of meaning is in the imagination. Mm -hmm. So that's why we emphasize images so much. In my last, one of my last conversations with Hillman, actually, not, not the very last, but about a year before he died, he and I were invited to go to Dallas to go back there to give lectures. And I met with him at his house and I asked him if, uh, if he's able to go. And he said, no, he said he, it's, he was too sick. He couldn't make it. But he said he was very frustrated because he wanted to go once more. He wanted to give a lecture on the imagination. 
and the importance of images to be treated as images, not as symbols, not as things that we know or can define, but uh, these mysterious and immeasurable uh, images that are part of our daily life. We need to know that, that he felt, and we have to be able to work with those images. Yeah, I remember that very distinctly from your webinar series through Pacifica, yeah. you mentioning that, you know, one of his last items was, you know, to really stress the importance of images and to have one last chance to, you know, right. try to make that clear. It's a very touching moment for me to, you know, to see his frustration. And, you know, I went, I went to Dallas myself. Another thing that I loved in your webinar series was um, because it's something I understood or felt or sensed from, you know, everything that I've read in Hillman's work. Towards the end of the series, you you said to really work with Hillman's work, you have to get rid of the word projection. And I went, yes, thank you, because projection is used so much as an analytical thing. And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little more on, you know, the importance with Hillman's work of leaving out that word projection. Well, the main reason is that it, it, it goes against the imagination, because let's say uh, you, you're walking in the woods and you think that a bird has spoken to you. Uh, that's what you hear, and you get a message from it. And someone will say, well, that's projecting. You are projecting onto that bird that it can talk. Well, we would say, Hillman and I would say, no, you're not projecting that. That makes it all you. It's mm -hmm. as if then the whole world is you. Why not allow the world to have its powers yeah. to allow that? You know, that's the point for not projecting. Yeah. I recently saw um, the Guthrie Theater's production of Into the Woods, the Stephen Sondheim musical, and Cinderella talks to birds. And towards the end, Little Red Riding Hood watches her talk to birds, and Red Riding Hood is like, you can talk to birds? It's a very charming moment. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an important one because it is a kind of animism. Yeah. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a primitive animism. It's a more... You know, it's one that has been filtered through centuries of of, uh, of understanding and, and and thought, but it is a kind of animism because we allow the world to have a soul. That's that's what yeah. animism would mean. So we allow the world to be animate and to be able to express itself and to give us messages. And we have to use language then that is more mythological because. Mm -hmm. Scientific language doesn't work. That all it's all ego-centered. So it doesn't work. And it's heroic. And that's something Jung emphasized too, was he preferred to talk mythologically because it was more accurate. It is more yeah. accurate. It it allows the other, it allows the otherness of, of our of the soul, really. Yeah. So it's other. And then if we if we don't get that into our language, then we have it wrong. It makes me think, too, of Hillman's work with the Senex and the Puer, the old man and the eternal child or yes. um, eternal youth, mm -hmm. and how, you know, I've I've taught about that myself with an astrological bent to it. And it I find it really important, this distinction that he makes, and then talks about how it's been separated, and we get dominated by the negative Senex in a certain regard. And I remember he a, a workshop that he did where he asked people, you know, where is the puer in the society today? And it seems to have gone missing. But the puer is that hookup into the imagination. You know, do you, can you share your understanding and 
um, some thoughts about the Senecs and the Puer duality yeah. pairing. Yes, you know, this, this was this was one of Filma's first uh, contributions. Puer Senex. He worked on it extensively in the 1970s and early 80s. <laughs> and um, uh, what he's saying there, I think, is is that uh, that we as people, but also things and animals, everything has this combination of youth and age in it. So from the very beginning within us as, a, as who we are in our being, we are both young and old. And maybe mm -hmm. people usually notice that very young children can seem old. They, you can see the old Sanex in them. Sanex the, means old person, Puer means youth or boy. And um, so you might see the Sanex spirit it's not their personality trait, it's the spirit in them, the spirit mm -hmm. of youth, the spirit of age within them. And you can find a very old person has a very strong puer spirit in them. My father died at 100, and at his 100th birthday party, he was full of puer spirit at 100. You can, you know, so it's not literal, it's not about actual age, yeah. but it is constant. And it's not about getting a balance. None of this is about balance. Yeah. It's just avoiding the word altogether. Yeah. It's not about balance. It's about having some, at maybe some point in your life, you're full of Sanex, and another time you're not. You don't have much at all. Yeah. So uh, it's a spirit that affects us, affects our relationships. Now that I'm getting older myself, um, I am aware of this that people have a hard time with the Sanic spirit. They want to put too much of that on me. I don't feel mm -hmm. it. I have a lot of poor in me. I think I'm like my father. And they treat me as a Sanic person. And I don't have that much, I don't think, that much Sanic spirit to feel comfortable with it. So mm -hmm. um, I'm finding that that's one thing that's going on. Also, in our society, we have a split so that we have when when these things get split apart, like anything like that, they get exaggerated and their negativity shows up. So mm -hmm. we can have Senex people who want things to be all the way they've always been. Mm -hmm. And they get very uh, vocal about that and insistent. Other people act out like they're um, they don't have any responsibilities or any they don't want any tradition. They just want to invent everything new. Mm -hmm. And then you get this struggle between these two different types of people. And that is really a struggle between the Sanex and the Spirit and the uh, Puer. Mm -hmm. So uh, that I think if you don't have this imaginal psychology to see that, you will make it personal. And it's really not a personal issue. It's something that can that happens in the in the environment of the psyche. Yeah, it's something I personally love with Hillman's work because I experience it on a personal level because if people find out my actual age, they're like, what? Because it's starting to change, but I often come across as much younger than I actually am. And that speaks to what you're talking about and what Hillman, ha he has a volume called Senex and Puer of his collected essays. And I've gone back to that again and back to that again, because I find it so relevant to connecting with that puer for the sake of imagination. So important to be in touch with both, actually. They don't, as I say, they don't need to be in balance. Yeah. But you, 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 I think you're best off if you have representation of both, a decent representation <laughs> of both. Yeah. You don't control that, of course, but you can, you can allow it and tolerate it and even enjoy it. And, and make use of it in your life. Yeah, and the way that I, you know, work with, you know, the imagination and archetypal understanding, you know, there's the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Evita. And of all things, you know, I hear the Senex and the Puer in her because she says through the lyrics, you know, that are given to her to sing in the musical, the choice was mine and mine completely. I could, I could burn with the splendor of a thousand suns or else, or else I could choose time, yeah. you know, which would be the Senex. And she yeah. saw it as a choice, right. but it's right. often these brilliant puer spirits that burn out really quickly, right? Because it's, you know, that spirit is so strong. 
Yes, you can find it everywhere. I, sometimes I, I uh, when I'm teaching this, I, I present the poem of Dylan Thomas, Fern Hill, where he starts out, oh, I was young and as, when I was young and easy under the apple boughs. You know, it's like he's that youth looking to his youth. And, uh, and then as the poem goes, he it ages, he ages and mm. it changes, the tone changes. There's a lot of uh, poetry in there. There are many stories about that kind of thing. One of the novels that's always affected me is Deliverance. These, uh, these, these suburban men go out into the woods to kind of have a wild time and enjoy, the, enjoy nature. And uh, they end up facing all kinds of threats and violence as they're in the woods. And, and I think it's that Pu'er spirit. There are myths of, of this, the myth of Actaeon where you go, the figure goes, the puer goes into the woods because he thinks it's going to be fun. And he finds out that you don't go into the woods for fun. All the fairy tales tell us that. Yeah. You're going into the woods, you're, you're going to run into trouble. Uh, but they don't know that. The puer gets into situations that are difficult for him, and he's lucky to survive them. And that story, one of the characters doesn't survive. I think that's a very instructive uh, pattern for us to be, to be able to notice in our own experience. And everything you are saying is on display in that musical I mentioned, Into the Woods, Into know, the Woods by right. Stephen Sondheim. You know, <laughs> it's full of tragedy and comedy yeah. and, yeah. you know, um, wit and depth. It. It's great. One of the other things that might be interesting to talk about is how, because it seems relevant today in the culture, is how anima is not related to gender. Mm -hmm. That's another one of the early thing, essays that Hellman sent me uh, before I met him, that it was really important to me to be able to dislodge anima and animus from gender. Mm -hmm. It's understandable, everyone seems to understand that when Jung did this, he was writing about uh, anima, what, I don't know, in 1920 or so, I'm not sure. Uh, and the gender, the spirit, the feeling about gender worldwide was very different. It's mm -hmm. a very different situation. And I think it was natural for him to relate it to gender. I don't know if that's a good explanation for that or not, but it's it's one I've heard. And I think it's okay. Um, but Hillman thought that uh, what we need to do is free up on, anima and animus. Anima is a Latin word for soul. It's the Latin translation of the Greek psyche or psyche, which means soul. And animus is a translation of the Greek word panoima that means spirit, as mm -hmm. in pneumonia mm -hmm. and wind, you know. And so, uh, so Jung thought that, was, and he presents it so strongly that I think all, so many Jungians for, for many decades have followed him on it, that, that men have a natural animus and they're fine with their animus, but they they, their, their anima is unconscious and undeveloped. And so that's what they have to work on. And women, just the opposite. Women are very identified with anima, but need to develop their animus. Mm -hmm. Could be for some people. You never know. But I think what we what Hillman says is that you don't have to connect it to gender at all. Yeah. You, can keep, you can keep, if you want, the gender of the image. That's something else. So anima can be seen as a feminine spirit, if you want, anonymous as a masculine one, if that's useful. Mm -hmm. It's unnecessary, probably, but it could be done. Um, but it's not related to actual men and women. So yeah. that means that maybe, well, you know, a woman has to deal, has to deal both with her anima and animus equally, or depending on who you are, whatever the proportion is, as an individual. It's not a matter of gender for everybody for all women have to deal with their, their unconscious animus. So I don't know, I find as I travel now, I speak a great deal to young societies and I get the impression that's loosening up a great deal now. People, it seems to be loosening up on the literal level, you know, yeah. gender at the literal level. And yeah. I just like to think that, you know, at the soul level, it's all there because of that polytheism, you know, and yeah. so it's what's alive in your soul. That's right. That's and right. it, so, did you yeah. ever meet the Jungian analyst um, Lynn Cowan? Yes, I have. Yeah, I did. Yeah. 
Yeah, she she lived in the Twin Cities, and yeah, I just she remember. Did. I met her there. Yes, I remember driving around yeah. with her in her car once. You know, with my brother, we were talking about these kinds of things, and I believe she studied with Hillman. You know, under Hillman yeah. in Zurich, and she yeah. just came to the same conclusion that you know, to talk about gender at the soul level is really difficult because it's not literal. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, she was very bright. I, I and I enjoyed uh, my time with her when I when I saw her. She did, she wrote on masochism, which is one of my own concerns. Yeah, and that's one of your books that I haven't read. Dark Eros, I yes, believe. Dark Eros. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to actually just not go into that, but just head back into sure. this distinction from Hellman. Um, because I think it's another one of the really important ones, and you write about it in Care of the Soul, is the difference between the spirit and the soul. Because mm -hmm. people confuse them. And I think in our culture, yeah. it seems very confused. I know. Uh, when when I first read Hillman's essay called Peaks and Veils, which is about this thing, mm -hmm. I had to read it about five or six times because I, it took me a while because I had been involved in in spirit i was i was a monk for in my youth for for 13 years and i heard the word soul and spirit both of them many times so i was very mm -hmm. interested i didn't i never thought about the difference between them before mm -hmm. but it's really quite simple that um, that you might say there are two of these like saint Exupéry, are two spirits two different things by spirit i don't mean like an angel inhabiting you what i mean is just like the spirit of community or the spirit of companionship, mm -hmm. that kind of a spirit that you feel in you, it can be um, uh, it can be soul. It could be your soul that you that you sense in you, which is very intimate. Like it's in your body, you feel your soul in your body. Uh, it's about things that are very close to your ordinary daily intimate life, like your home, having a home and. And looking for a place that feels like home, a place on the planet, a building that house, a house that works for you as a home. That is very important to the soul. It's a grounding for the soul. Mm -hmm. And making food and serving food intimately and having dinner with people, you know, family or with a close friend, you know, the feeling of that is soulful. It's there are a lot of soul in that. It's so intimate. And yeah. it the tradition is, this is an old idea, the tradition is that the soul makes us human. It gives mm -hmm. us humanity. Mm -hmm. It's just more human beings. You can say, you know, you can enjoy eating together. That's a very human thing to do. That's a soulful thing to do. Spirit is also in us at something similar, but it's different. And that is that we also have this desire to transcend Mm -hmm. To go beyond ourselves, to uh, even if it's very physical, like going to Mars, that's kind of a spirit thing to go leave the planet. Or it could be something more closer to home, like you want to travel the world and get to see the world and leave home to do that. That's a, that's a spirit move. Or you go to a church that has a steeple on it pointing up into nothingness in the sky that spirit there, you're moving toward the spirit, trying to get away from all the things that interfere with that spirit on earth. People who learn to meditate often are taught not to let their bodies get in the way. And it's like you subdue your body or your appetites or don't eat now and don't drink. Don't mm -hmm. do these various things your body might want. That's trying to free the spirit. And that makes some sense, but you've got to be careful because in its best situation, soul and spirit are linked. Yeah. So you can become very spirit-minded, but you still have a soul. You don't hurt your soul in doing that. I actually did an internet radio show a number of years ago called Imagine That. It was the first iteration of what mm -hmm. has now become a podcast. And I played, to talk about this distinction, I played a really sh a short, fast song by Barbara Streisand that was kind of move. And it has this, you know, very spirited, very energetic, fast kind of thing going. And then to demonstrate soul, I played a very long five minute slow ballad that just builds and gets so beautiful. And I feel like that's one of the distinctions. And I feel like 
I don't know why I'm mentioning musicals so much today with you. It's interesting, but two of the most popular musicals of all time, you know, Phantom of the Opera descends down into the underworld. And the Les Miserables first is, you know, it's the miserable, you know, so it goes into the pathologizing and explores it. But the first song is called Look Down. Mm-hmm. So that n- notion that the soul descends and the spirit rises fits yeah. in there, you know, doesn't it? Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. Spirit and soul are always in their kind of a up and down and different relationship all the time. Yeah. And I think right now, because I follow popular culture and, you know, since I was a kid, I've followed the pop charts, you know, the top 40 and I, I miss the big long ballads. You know, they're not, there's not very many of them anymore. No, I, I feel similarly. I mean, by the way, I am a musician. I've studied music composition for many years. And, uh, I, and I've, classical music is kind of my main, my main area. Um, but uh, I, so I appreciate your references to music. I think music is, uh, in fact, when I have to t- I tell you this, uh, I didn't mention it before. Um, the first article I wrote for, for Hellman was for Spring, the journal Spring, that he edited. And I wrote a piece called Musical Therapy. Hmm. It was called Music or Musical Therapy, I forget which now. But my idea was not to talk about actually using music, but that therapy itself has a musical form. And that uh, the many aspects of life are musical, are best understood through music uh, for their dynamics and their tempos and and melodies, everything. Harmonies, counterpoints. It's one of the reasons I feel like, you know, I I could go sit in a corner booth of a restaurant with you and talk for five hours. Because I, I have a background in music. I have a degree in music production. Oh, great. And even in just the most recent podcast that just came out a few days ago, I talk, I just mentioned how psychological symphonies are because they capture so many human dynamics that the DSM manual can't and never will. Yes, that's right. Much more subtle. Yeah. yeah. And I, I have a friend who talks about, um, you know, in astrology, there's the grand cross, which is, you know, four different angles all meeting up and, you know, creating all this tension. But she says, you know, listen to a quartet, you know, and see how these four different positions all play together and how they can work together. And I think that's brilliant. I was reading that you first in, in the monastery, you had a connection with Gregorian choirs. Oh, yes. I conducted uh, Gregorian chant. Yes. Uh, for years. Yeah. I find that so interesting because I don't know if you've ever heard of this. There's a pop music group, you know, far more popular in Europe than anyone knows really in the United States. They're called Gregorian. And what they do is they take pop songs from over the decades, pop rock songs and uh, original songs, and do them in the style of Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. So you can listen to Pink Floyd done by way of Gregorian chant. And if it sounds kind of really, <laughs> it's actually quite stunning and beautiful the way they yeah. do it because of the man behind it who's producing it. Yeah, I'm sure. But, I can understand that. I, uh, what that would be like, and I've I've had over the years my own thoughts of of using chant more for my own uh, compositions, and uh, I do it actually occasionally. In fact, in fact, quite often, and uh, <laughs> because I loved the chant, it's a beautiful, beautiful way of making music, and it's close to the human voice and close to what children do when they chant and sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you and Hillman connect on music at all, or just no, through the no. psyche? No, he didn't. Have, he would always ask me about music when we were together. You know, like if we're having, we were giving a lecture somewhere and someone raised music, he would ask me to respond because 
he he was interested. He certainly was interested, but he hadn't. You know, he can't do everything, and he didn't. He didn't really get into music. He didn't really get into art history either, which is surprising. He, his main mm -hmm. interest in education was in the history of philosophy, which is very different. Mm -hmm. uh, he was interested and knowledgeable, I would say, about all those other things. Not much about music, though. He mm -hmm. wasn't too knowledgeable about music. Interesting. I'd love to talk a little bit with you just before we wind up here about care of the soul. What drew you to write care of the soul? At the time, um, I had, uh, it's, you know, I had been a university, university professor. I was fired from that job. Hmm. Hilma told me that you can't teach soul at the university. And I guess <laughs> that's what it turned out to be. And um, so, uh, I became a therapist uh, almost, you know, I really didn't intend to, but I did. And I, I had been prepared to do it. I had the background I needed. Um, so I, I became a therapist and I realized that the people, the other therapists I was meeting were doing something entirely different. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe it would be a good idea. My first idea was to replace the idea of psychotherapy with care of the soul. It's mm -hmm. actually the same word. In Greek, it means the same thing. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought I'd use that phrase instead of talking about uh, psychotherapy or even, or even psychology. And um, so I, I just sat down to write it. I think it was heavily influenced by Hillman, but also my background in uh, the monastery. and all My whole background came into it. And I had my own ideas. I don't like to be identified with Hellman. You know, we, we were very close, but I do my own work and in my own style. Yeah, very style much. Yeah. Very, very different. And there are things we did, we differed on. This is a theme in itself that um, he was not too positively interested in spirit, things mm -hmm. of the spirit. And yeah. I have in my life. So I have been, for me, the ideal is to have spirit and soul together linked mm -hmm. together, maybe not equal or balanced, but linked together. Right. And for Hillman, he was out there to be critical of many, many manifestations of spirit. He didn't like it very much. Mm -hmm. He would look at me and sometimes in disdain, call me a monk. <laughs> so, so we were different that way. Uh, and so when I wrote Care of the Soul, I wanted to link soul and spirit. I wanted to take up some of the ideas I got from Hillman, like uh, approach to depression and some of these other things, and polytheism to some extent. But I think you'll find that care of the soul comes more from my Catholic past, mm, you know, yeah. from my experience as a Catholic monk. That was very important to me, and I I still appreciate those years that I had there. Although my my approach to religion is like entirely different today than it used to be. Um, but still, I think that uh, you'll find care of the soul is something that very much in tune with, I hope that it is soulful in itself, that it is not full of, of, uh, of rules on how to live and instructions and absolutes, but rather an exploration of how you could care for your soul instead of always trying to fix yourself. I find that so beautiful. And there's um, one quote in particular from it, from I think it's the introduction in the newer version that I'm just going to pull up here um, because you wrote, interestingly, one word for care that Plato put into Socrates' mouth was the Greek therapia, which means either care or service. Socrates says that it's like the care you'd give a horse on a farm. You feed it, brush it down, exercise it, give it water, and clean its stall. That's the model for therapy of the soul. It's an everyday attention to specific needs, not a cure or repair after things have fallen apart. And I think that captures something of the essence of the book, which has a great deal of spirit and soul, I would say. I, I would hope so. I was so happy to be able to write that that uh, extra chapter for the 25th anniversary of the book. And it's very charming the way you describe when you went to talk about it the first time and nobody showed up. 
yes. and you had no expectations. And then the next night you did something and, you know, it started to come alive. Yes, exactly. It's like the yes, eloquence I, of silence. That's right. The silence, <laughs> the emptiness of that, that story. It's the first story in my book on the eloquence of silence. And oh, yeah. I went to Portland, Oregon, and uh, I went to, I, I got there and I, I travel all the way from New Hampshire, you know, to get there, to be able to present this new book. And, and uh, the store turned out to be not a bookstore at all, but kind of a gift shop with a few books in the back. And, oh, wow. And I, I sat there the, you know, for about a half hour or so, and no one came, no one. I was just the owner of the shop and myself. We had a conversation. And uh, then I left and I thought, well, that's the end of it. I'm not going to be a writer, that's for sure. And 30 books later. <laughs> 30 books later, yes. So I want to thank you for talking with me today. It's been so wonderful. And you're the kind of person that I think, like last night I was imagining, I was like, if you were British, you would be knighted by the order of the British Empire as Sir Thomas More. <laughs> I'd be you, for me, you have Thomas that quality. What's that? I'd be Sir Thomas More too. Yeah. The other Thomas More there's there. Yes. But um it's just been a pleasure. And I hope we can do this again at some point. That would be nice, Sean. I'd like to, we have a lot in common and uh, it'd be nice to be able to talk. And, you know, it's so easy for me when I'm talking to somebody who at least, you know, that where we have a common language and common approach to things. So I enjoy it very much. Oh, me too. Me too. It's just wonderful. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.